0: CHAPTER Nine OF CUT BY THE COUNTY. OR GRACE DARNELL. BY MARY ELIZABETH Braddon. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. LOVE WILL HAVE HIS WAY. The third day began, and still no change in the patient Mr. Colchester had called on the day before. He called again at breakfast-time on this third morning, on his way home after cub-hunting, apologetic about his mud-besplattered boots. The footman ushered him into the dining-room, and he found himself face to face with Grace Darnell before he had time to collect his thoughts. So glad to see you again, so sorry to hear Sir Allan is no better, he faltered as they shook hands. A capital run found at Ringtree Marsh, quarter past six, ran into Milksham Cops over Chadbury Common, back again into Milksham, got him out into the fields, ran right away to Patsfield over some stiffish country, lost him in Swatley Wood after forty minutes hard going, started another at half past seven. But I ought not to talk to you about such things when you are also unhappy, said Colchester, suddenly aware that he was behaving like a brute, as he saw the blank faces of the two women. The colonel looked a little interested in spite of his anxiety will you take a cup of tea or may i give you some coffee asked dora solemnly thank you i should like some tea above all things the butler had arranged a place for the dropper in at grace's right hand and had put a dish of cutlets in front of that place by way of invitation so mr colchester sat down and took his cup of tea he was much too agitated to eat anything in spite of his three or four hours in the cold morning air and his forty minutes across the country he thought it an extraordinary privilege to be sitting next grace to be able to look at her and talk to her yesterday he had been favoured with a second interview with dora which had been depressing to the last degree grace looked very miserable but oh how pretty she was in her misery and how many years of his life he would have bartered away for the power to console her but he could do nothing except steal a look at her every now and then as he drank his tea when do you begin your regular season asked colonel stukeley after silence had prevailed for some minutes not till next month we shall finish our cub hunting this week and then we shall have a few bye days our first advertised meet is to be on the fifth of october "'I hope all will be well here ever so long before then, and that, if you don't go to Italy, you'll be out and in full force on that day,' added Mr. Colchester, looking at Grace. "'I don't suppose I shall ever hunt again,' said Grace, bursting into tears, and the lord of the manor felt that he was an undisciplined brute, always blurting out foolish speeches, and that there was no help for him. The butler came back at this moment with an unusually solemn air, as one who only delivers messages of vital import. He bore a silver salver with a card upon it, which he carried to Miss Darnall. "'The gentleman says that he is here by appointment, ma'am.' "'Show him to the library,' said Dora, rising with a stately air. "'Kindly excuse me, Mr. Colchester.' "'I am going this instant. I had not to have stayed so long,' said Colchester apologetically, getting up with a hurried air. But nobody was thinking about him or how long he stayed. Grace had gone over to her aunt. "'Who is this person, Aunt Dora?' she asked anxiously. "'Another doctor?' "'No, it is a person on business. "'A person I sent for,' answered Miss Darnell. "'I don't think I need make any concealment about the matter. "'The person is a detective from Scotland Yard.' a detective aunt dora a detective in this house summoned by you why not child if you are indifferent as to the manner in which your father received the wound which may be his death if you and lady darnel his wife and his daughter are content to sit down and let the murderer escape i his sister am not so content the mystery ought to be fathomed and as there is no one in this house clever enough to fathom it i have sent for professional assistance you may have acted wisely in so doing replied colonel stukeley but it would have been more friendly to acquaint Sir Allan's daughter and his old comrade before you took such a serious step, not to mention his wife, who had a still better claim to be told. "'I'm very glad you've got a detective,' said Colchester, "'for I believe he'll be of my way of thinking, and sent a burglar in this business. Good-bye. I'll come round again this afternoon, if I may, just to see how things are going on.' "'Come as often as you like, Colchester,' replied the Colonel heartily. "'Your presence will do something towards cheering us.' Grace shook her head despondingly nothing can cheer us until my father is out of danger she said as edward colchester backed out of the room entangling himself with his spurs and looking at her adoringly to the last as this kind of thing is altogether out of your line miss Darnall, i think it would be as well for me to see the detective with you said the colonel that is to say if you wish to see him at all i could spare you the painful interview altogether as i can give the man all the information necessary i am not a stranger to this kind of inquiry i would much rather see the person myself replied dora with an offended air i sent for him upon my own responsibility and i particularly desire that he should know my ideas about this terrible event if you take my advice you will tell him no ideas of your own or anyone else's answered the colonel sharply give him nothing but the plain facts and let him work out the solution of the problem in his own way the detective police are not heaven-born geniuses but most of them are hard-headed sensible men and not likely to go far astray except when they are muddled and misdirected by non-professional interference "'I do not think you have any reason to consider me either a child or an idiot,' "'Colonel Stookley retorted Miss Darnall. "'Pray permit me to manage my own affairs. "'You can go with me to the library, if you please.' "'The Colonel did please, and followed the lady closely, "'while Grace went upstairs to her stepmother, "'who sat by the fire, motionless, apathetic. "'The dainty little breakfast-table beside her "'was scarcely disturbed from the neat order "'in which it had been brought into the room. "'You have eaten positively nothing, mother,' said Grace, "'scrutinizing the table. "'I have had some tea and a little toast.' "'I have done very well,' answered Clare, and then in a despairing tone she added, "'Oh, Grace, there is no improvement. I spoke to one of the nurses. She was going off to her bedroom with such an orderly air as if life or death were all the same to her. There is no diminution of the fever, the temperature is just as high. He has not spoken one sensible word since that night. Mr. Fredrickson is to come again today, but the nurse thinks it would be madness to attempt to extract the bullet while he is in this state. I do not believe these people have any hope of saving him.' "'Oh, Mother, we must save him.' god will answer our prayers cried grace let us pray for that dear life together side by side with heart and strength and mind surely god must hear and answer such prayers in the library mr penwern a homely-looking middle-aged man with pepper and salt hair and whiskers and pepper and salt clothing to match was listening and questioning and making notes until he had the story of sir alan's wound so far as it was known to miss Darnell and colonel stukeley all in black and white before him then he went up to see the room in which the catastrophe happened and moving to and fro quietly lest he should disturb the patient in the adjoining room he made a complete inspection of the ground here was the spot just inside the threshold where sir Allan was found lying there were stains of blood upon the Obison carpet to mark the place where he lay while they waited for the coming of the doctor he had clutched the portiere as he fell for the first three or four hooks that sustained it were wrenched from the brass rod there was lady Darnell's writing-table she had been sitting there writing ten minutes before she heard the pistol shot from the corridor outside there were the two french windows opening on to the balcony was either of these windows open on the night yes one was open the colonel remembered the wind blowing in his face as he came in at the door mr Penwern stepped out upon the balcony and made his survey it was a broad old-fashioned balcony roofing in a colonnade outside of the breakfast room below the iron pilasters of the colonnade were covered with greenery a mighty wisteria spread itself along the ironwork like a curtain an old magnolia was trained over one side of the balcony easy enough for an active man to reach such a balcony "'no difficulty as to access. "'The next question to be considered was motive. "'Any valuables kept at this end of the house?' asked the detective. "'Lady Darnall has some jewelry in her dressing-room,' answered Dora. "'But Lady Darnall's are not family jewels, "'not of sufficient renown to tempt a thief, I should think.' "'Thieves are easily tempted nowadays,' answered Penwern. "'The trade is overrun, and business is often very slack. "'It seems to me that this balcony is about the easiest access "'all along this side of the house, "'and to the point at which any man would naturally enter.' but with this room occupied with lamps burning suggested dora incredulously the room had been deserted for some minutes before the shot was fired a man might have been on the watch for this opportunity surely he would have waited till lady darnall had gone to bed till the house was dark that seems only reasonable said dora it seems reasonable but there is the fact that the shot was fired and there is the antecedent that sir Allan got up and came to that door yonder i take it that he heard a strange footstep in this room and that he came in just in time to surprise the burglar are you sure that there were no valuables kept in this very room "'Quite sure,' answered Dora, "'it is Lady Darnall's boudoir. "'There has never been anything kept here "'except her work-boxes and writing-cases, "'and books, just as you see them now.' "'The detective had devoured the room with his eyes. "'He knew every article it contained. "'In that Italian cabinet, for instance, "'are no valuables, trinkets, money kept there?' "'He asked. "'Nothing of the kind, to my knowledge.' "'Stay,' exclaimed the colonel. "'Sir Alan told us that he had drawn four hundred pounds "'in banknotes for travelling expenses. "'How do we know that he did not keep the money in this room, "'in that cabinet, perhaps?' I saw him put away a lease in that very cabinet a fortnight ago when I was here with him and Lady Darnall at afternoon tea. Lady Darnall would be the most likely person to enlighten us, I take it, said the detective who thirsted to see Lady Darnall. Until he had scrutinized and taken stock of every member of the family and household, it was to Mr. Penwern as if he were playing a difficult game of cards blindfolded. When he had seen all his cards, he would begin to understand what game he had to play. After a few minutes' whispered conversation with the colonel, Dora went in quest of Lady Darnall she went reluctantly since she would have preferred that this professional investigation should have been carried on without lady darnall's knowledge a secret underground business dark as Belzoni's researches in egyptian tombs she wanted the thing to be her work a mystery between her and the detective to explode at a given moment in a startling revelation which should bring shame and discomfiture on the woman she hated and now this detested second wife was to be let into the secret, was to have due notice of what was taking place, and would thus be able to prevent discovery were she, as Dora Darnall firmly believed, a guilty agent in the catastrophe. If it was her infamy in the past which drove him to suicide, or if it was some lover of hers who stole into the house to murder him, this detective ought to be able to unravel the mystery, Dora told herself as she went slowly to Grace's bedroom. But Lady Darnall, once on her guard, may be able to frustrate him in his investigation, to throw dust in his eyes." She found Clare Darnall sitting by her neglected fire, just as Grace had left her. "'There is a person here trying to find out the mystery of my brother's wound,' she said, curtly. "'He wants to ask you a few questions.' Clare started suddenly to her feet. That marble face of hers could not grow paler than it had been, but there was a frightened look in her eyes which Dora was quick to perceive. "'What kind of person?' she asked. "'A police officer?' "'He comes from Scotland Yard.' Lady Darnall made no further remark." They went in silence to the morning-room, where Mr. Penwern was standing in front of the window, looking out, while the colonel fidgeted about by the cold, blank hearth. The detective turned as Lady Darnall entered, saluted her respectfully, and looked at her with grave eyes which absorbed every detail of her appearance, without the faintest indication of eagerness or curiosity. She stood with her splendid figure drawn to its fullest height, her head erect. Not a vestige of colour varied the marble whiteness of her complexion. The face was colourless and calm as the face of a statue, But the heavy eyelids, the purple shadows round the eyes, told of long agonies of weeping. It was not the first time Clare Darnall had faced the police, had answered to the inquiries in a criminal investigation. Despite the calm dignity of her attitude, the statuesque repose of her features, the detective saw the signs of apprehension, secret fears which she was struggling to repress. This woman knows more than anyone else, he thought, and then he questioned Lady Darnall about the contents of the cabinet. Yes, she said dreamily, as if only just remembering the fact, there are some banknotes there the money Sir Alan had drawn for our travelling expenses. Her voice faltered a little as she recalled her delight in the idea of that journey, the sweet expectation of happy days with her beloved in a lovely land, and now a grave yawned before, darkest, direst fears crowded upon her soul. "'A large sum of money?' inquired Penwern. Three? no I think it was four hundred pounds.' "'Have you the key of the cabinet, Lady Darnall?' My husband and I have duplicate keys, but I doubt if Sir Alan locked the cabinet that night. He had taken out his pistols in order to examine them. He was excited, tired, and did not put the pistols back in the cabinet. "'Will you be good enough to see if the notes are still there, Lady Darnall?' asked the detective. She started, looked at him curiously, and then a sudden flow of crimson swept over her cheek and brow. "'What difference can it make? The notes are safe, of course,' she said. "'Not that there was a burglar in this room, and he was clever enough to secure his booty before Sir Alan interrupted him. You don't suppose, Lady Darnall, I take it, that Sir Alan got up out of his bed and came to this room to shoot himself?'' I suppose nothing i know nothing except that my husband's life is in danger the law wants to know a great deal more than that said dora the law wants to know how my poor brother's life came to be endangered oblige me by looking for the notes lady darnall said the detective the obvious reading of this sad business is that sir Allan was shot by a burglar who managed to escape before you re-entered this room if so the burglar must have come after something and with some definite purpose please try the cabinet he could see that she was reluctant curiously reluctant to obey but she went slowly to the italian cabinet and opened the doors to the widest she had been right in her conjectures the cabinet had not been locked since sir alan took out the pistol case do you find the notes lady darnel asked penworn which she had been standing there some minutes examining shelves and drawers and secret nominally secret receptacles at the back of the quaint old piece of furniture no they are not here at least i cannot find them do you know if sir alan had taken the numbers of these notes i think not he only drew them from the bank the day before the accident he was out with the hounds early next morning he was engaged with his steward all the afternoon we can get the numbers from the bank i dare say said the colonel true but they will be of very little use to us Banknotes and diamonds are the bread and cheese of the burglar's trade the thing is to find out who did this i have an idea that i could put my hand upon the man the hero of a good many portico robberies pray what is a portico robbery asked the colonel almost every country seat has a portico the better the house the bigger the portico explained the detective nothing easier to scale than a handsome classical portico no ladder or ropes or telltale apparatus wanted the burglar watches his opportunity generally finds it at dusk when the family are to dinner the servants all occupied downstairs he scales the portico there is always at least one window above it he gets quickly in at the window sneaks along a corridor to my lady's dressing-room or bedroom of course he has learned the geography of the upper floor beforehand finds her jewel-case pitches it out of the window to friend or friends below Catch as catch can, and as quietly sneaks out of the house and off to the nearest railway station, where friends have gone on before with trap. If he is met in a corridor after the fact, there is no property in his possession. He rushes past a bewildered maid servant, gets clear off before she can collect her senses. And do you think that this was a portico robbery? said the colonel. I know of only one man, a distinguished artist in that line, quick enough and audacious enough to manage this business in the time in which it was done, replied the detective. Pray, Lady Darnell, how long were you absent from this room before you heard a pistol shot? A very short time. Five minutes?' "'Rather more than that, nearly ten minutes, perhaps.' "'Ah, the man I mean could do a good deal more than ransack that cabinet in ten minutes. "'After you heard the pistol shots, did you lose much time in getting to this room?' "'Not an instant.' "'And when you came in, there was no one in the room but Sir Allen? "'No one.' "'And you did not think of looking out the window for the assassin?' "'I thought of nothing but my husband.' "'A pity. "'Yet, I don't suppose you would have seen much if you had looked. "'Did nobody think of examining the grounds round the house that night?' No one, answered Colonel Stukely. We ought to have hunted the scoundrel, but we were all half out of our wits. The only thought was of Sir Allan and getting the doctor. So the man had his chance, and got clean off. He must have left the neighbourhood by an early train and got back to London. I dare say I shall be able to hear something about him at the station. By the way, Lady Darnall, do you remember if there was any conversation about those notes between you and Sir Allan that evening? Anything that could have been overheard by a person standing outside the balcony? Sir Allan spoke of the notes before he put them away. Was the window open at that time? "'Yes, there was a window open.' "'Thank you, Lady Darnall. I don't think I need trouble you any more. Be kind enough to lock that cabinet, and keep the key in your possession. It is a good lock, I suppose?' "'It is a Brahma lock, which Sir Alan had put on three years ago,' said Dora. Lady Darnall sunk into her chair by the hearth, the pretty, party-coloured basket-chair in which she had sat on many an evening, chatting with her husband when the rest of the household had retired for the night. She sat with her hands idle in her lap, her eyes fixed and tearless, lost in painful thoughts, Yes, the notes were gone, and she knew too well whose hands had taken them. She could understand it all now, her son's persistent demand for three or four hundred pounds. He had been standing out on the balcony by the open window when Sir Allan talked about the notes. He had seen where they were put. He would have got them from her if he could, induced her to rob her husband for his benefit. It was toward that point he was urging when Grace's summons called her suddenly away, and he was left in the room with the money within his reach. Then came the diabolical temptation, an easy step from dishonorable dealing to absolute theft." The man who had never hesitated at cheating a creditor became in a moment the midnight robber. Then the surprise, the pistols lying there fatally ready for use, a shot fired at random, perhaps, and a hasty escape by the open window. While she was thus picturing the horror of that night, Mr. Penwern was out in the balcony making a further investigation. A box of mignonette stood in his way as he stepped from the window to the balcony. It must have been in the way of the burglar in his FLIGHTS. Mr. Penwern knelt down and examined the flowers and the mould under them. Yes, the man had trodden on the mignonette. There are broken stems, bruised leaves, and the deep print of a heel on one side of the box, a smallish heel, worn down on one side. A fashionably made boot, but a deuced old boot, said Mr. Penward to himself, as he studied that point in the mould. I never knew Covey to sport anything as shabby as that. Covey was always neat about his understanding. A man who has to get across country against time can't afford to be slipshod or down at heel. The footprint in the mignonette's box made the manner of the burglar's escape a certainty to the mind of Mr. Penwerne. He went downstairs with Colonel Stukely and made a minute examination of the Italian garden in front of the balcony. He was able to trace footsteps in a diagonal line across the garden, deeply stamped upon flower-beds, and but faintly indicated here and there on the gravel walks. The man had worn odd boots, one boot with a broader heel than the other, and a hole in the middle of the sole, both boots seemingly in the last stage of dilapidation. "'Egad!' exclaimed the Colonel, after the detective had expatiated upon these marks. "'He must have been a shabby devil.' as he spoke a sudden scare took hold of him what if this man should have been the french adventurer grace's disreputable lover the man he had seen lying in the common was clad like a tramp shod like a tramp and those indications on the flower beds pointed to just such a man taking this fact in conjunction with kamalak's disappearance his silence towards grace the colonel felt that there was ground for fear unhappy grace if her folly should have brought this ruin upon her father's house and to pursue this investigation which Penwern was conducting with ill-concealed cheerfulness as of one certain of distinction and reward to pursue this investigation to the end might be to inflict ineffable shame upon his goddaughter were this kamalak the offender any trial any public examination must need bring that miserable episode of grace's parisian education into the broad glare of newspaper publicity and the colonel knew how charitable this world of the waning nineteenth century is how given to look at the best and brightest side of a strange story how loath to attribute evil to youth or womanhood the colonel saw his hazel-eyed darling's reputation blasted irretrievably in the very morning of life he saw even honest edward colchester's faith uprooted his love cast to the four winds and in his heart colonel Stukeley cursed dora Darnell for her officiousness mr penwern seemed troubled in his mind after the discovery of these irregular prints in the flower-beds he went back to them he scrutinized them as closely as a great chemist might have watched some curious experiment he was evidently dashed in spirits he had made up his mind that this little affair had been carried through by the distinguished covey it bore as he thought the very stamp of covey's workmanship for covey was unscrupulous and would not have hesitated at shooting down any who came in his way he did things neatly but he did not mind a little blood now and then but mr Penwern seemed to know covey as if he were his brother and he could not believe that any turn of fortune's wheel could bring covey to wear such boots as those disgraceful objects that had left the print of their trodden-down heels on the flower-beds of Darnell. if i could believe in a tramp clever enough to do such neat work i should say that this had been done by a tramp said the detective with conviction but i never knew a tramp yet that could rise above a kitchen window robbery come back to the house and have some lunch said the colonel with the sinister intent of giving the detective such liberal entertainment as should at least take the sharp edge off his power of perception he could not hope to make such a respectable man drunk but he thought it might be possible to get him slightly muddled mr Penwern was mortal and mr Penwern was hungry he had been travelling since half-past six o'clock and it was now half-past twelve The Darnell dining-room looked a very luxurious place after the refreshment-room at the junction, where Mr. Penwern had regaled himself with a cup of tea which had a strictly rustic flavour of new-mown hay, and a stale bath-bun. The Colonel urged Perdue, in a confidential aside, to do the very best he could for Mr. Penwern, and Perdue opined from the Colonel's tone that there was some especial reason for making much of the stranger. He sent a peremptory order to the kitchen, and he brought forth a fat cobwebby bottle of his choicest burgundy, a velvety chambaton with an aroma of violet's beside the sacred wine which reposed slanting-wise in a basket the butler placed a pint decanter of dry sherry bright to the eye pleasantly bitter to the taste a tonic and an appetizer the cook was quick to respond to the major-domo's order in a little more than a quarter of an hour just time enough for mr penwern to look at sir Allan's pictures and to wash his mouth out with a couple of glasses of the dry sherry the meal was ready a filleted sole with olives and mushrooms a salami of partridges with plenty of truffles and an incomparable gravy "'This is the kind of thing I like,' admitted Mr. Penwern, as he lapped up the gravy. He was not a man to put his knife in his mouth, but he unbent so far as to sop up the sauce with his bread. This is the sort of snack I enjoy, something light and tasty. When I am on a job like this, I usually find myself introduced to a cold sirloin or a silverside. People seem to think that nothing can be too substantial for Scotland Yard. Now, I'm not an epicure, sir, but silversides and sirloins are apt to pall upon a man at my time of life. Thank you, sir, that's burgundy is the finest I ever partook of.' The detective had lunched, luxuriously, and now he leaned back in his chair, made himself thoroughly comfortable with his toothpick, and sipped the big bell-shaped glass of burgundy. "'A very pleasant wine,' he said approvingly. "'A sound, wholesome wine.' "'Don't be afraid of it, Mr. Penwern,' said the colonel. "'It is too good a wine to do you any harm.' "'Not after such a luncheon as I have partaken of,' said the detective, who was evidently in an expansive mood. "'A little light meal like that leaves a man's intellect free to work out a difficulty, whereas your cold sirloin and pickles weigh him down like lead and your table-beer stupefies him.' and yet in almost all the houses i go into it's the same old story beef and beer they forget sir that a man in my position can get beef and beer at home he needn't go among the magnates of the land and flog his brains in their service for such entertainment as that however that's neither here nor there what i have to do is to find the man who took those notes and fired that pistol don't you think that the odds are very much against your finding him he having had three clear days start suggested the colonel that increases the difficulty i grant sir but it is a detective's business to rise superior to such difficulties If it was Covey, I should know where to put my hand upon him. But it's not Covey. Covey never wore down at heel boots, and Covey is much too clever to make a rush across flower beds. Covey does his work clean, and leaves no slot behind him. I suppose the family will offer a handsome reward. I really don't know. I think not, answered the colonel nervously. Mr. Penwern's countenance fell, in spite of the burgundy. I don't think there's much chance for the man of the money being found unless the family offers a reward, said Penwern. The door opened as he spoke dora darnall entered quietly and took her seat next to the colonel who would almost as soon have seen a cobra occupy those luxurious cushions the family will offer a reward said dora answering mr penwern who rose confusedly at her entrance and began to fold his napkin with the vague idea of getting it back into its original shape of a bishop's mitre i on the part of my brother's family will be answerable for that reward shall we offer a hundred pounds is that enough hardly replied mr penwern the money stolen was four hundred you had better offer two for the apprehension of the man who wounded sir alan if you get to the man you are very likely to get back a part of the money the money is of no consequence said dora but i do not wish my brother's murder for it is too likely we may lose him to go unavenged we need not wait until he is dead to find the man who attempted his life no madame there is not an hour to be lost time is half the battle in these cases replied the detective he was flushed with meat and drink his eyes sparkled he had the comfortable look of a man who had lunched abundantly but there was not the faintest indication of a muddled brain not a cloud overshadowed the professional intellect. Colonel Stookley felt that he and the cook and the butler had laboured in vain. "'With your permission, ma'am, I will go to the nearest town and get fifty small posters, offering the two-hundred-pound reward,' said the detective. "'I can get them printed and distributed in a couple of hours if I'm sharp.' "'By all means,' said Dora, approvingly. "'You can get a conveyance from the stable, and you had better make Donnell your headquarters while you are carrying on the investigation.' The colonel got up suddenly and walked out of the room in a savage humour— there could be no use in his wasting more time in diplomatic handling of the detective the business was taken out of his hands he could not offer mr penwin three hundred pounds not to find the delinquent and short of that he could do nothing stimulated by the offer of a reward the detective would bring his professional keenness into play at fullest power while every loafer in the district would be on the alert to help him unless the man who did the deed had got clean off and was already safe on the other side of the channel or on the high seas There was little hope that he could escape the observation and inquiry that would be brought to bear upon his personality within the next few days. Wherever he was lurking there must be somebody to observe and to question him. Go where he will, be he a first-class traveller or a ship-shod tramp, the stranger is a mark for curiosity. It must be a race between the detective and me, the colonel said to himself as he went in quest of grace, if the delinquent is the man I take him to be, I must find him and get him out of the country before the Scotland yard vulture makes his swoop the evidence upon which colonel Stukeley had formed his conclusion was of the slightest there were first those footprints prints that he had examined as minutely as the detective himself the marks of a small narrow foot a gentleman's foot in a boot which albeit worn to the quick showed the lines of a fashionable maker no hobnailed blucher no ready-made albert ever left such an imprint secondly there was the fact of comalock's appearance in the neighbourhood of Darnall in a condition which might inspire desperate acts and then there came the fact of his avanishment without sign or token for grace End of chapter 9